You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. And if you're looking at your podcast feed and you're thinking, I'm missing an episode. Well, we were supposed to interview Richard Balkum last week. That had to be delayed, so that I'll give you some more details on later on in the show. But today, we're talking about the gospel from another culture. And over here in the West, we pretty much go out and we give a sort of idea of giving the sinner's prayer telling people, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And we're very much into individualizing the gospel. But is that the way the gospel is seen all over the world? Now, to be sure, there is only one gospel, of course, but there are so many, many nations out there and so many cultures. Can the gospel really reach all of them? How is it seen in different cultures as well? And heck, could the culture of the Bible be a radically different culture? Could it be we are, in the words of Randy Richards and Brian O'Brien, misreading scripture with Western eyes a lot of times? Well, to discuss that, I uh, decided to have my friend Dr. Jackson Wu come on, who I got to meet at the Evangelical Theological Society. And he wrote a PhD dissertation about Saving God's Face. Now, who is he? He served Chinese pastors for over a decade. Presently, he's an associate pastor, a professor of the International Chinese Theological Seminary, where he teaches theology and missiology. Previously, he was a church planner, English teacher, and youth minister. During his youth, he grew up in the southern United States. Part of a non-religious family, he became a class follower at age 15. Jackson attended Texas A&M University, where he studied applied mathematics with a minor emphasis in economics. He also earned a Master of Arts in Philosophy on Texas A&M, writing his thesis on the theology undergirding the thought of Storm Kierkegaard. Later, he gained his MDiv from Gordon Cromwell Theological Seminary and a PhD from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. <laughs> he published his first book in the Evangelical Missiological Society Dissertation Series. It is titled Saving God's Faith a Chinese contextualization of salvation through honor and shame. In 2015, William Carey Library published Jackson's second book, One Gospel for All Nations, which we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about today, a practical approach to biblical contextualization. In a forthcoming book of the IVP, he will explore how honor and shame influence our understanding of Paul's letter of Romans. His articles have appeared in both missiological and theological journals. A few selected titles include Paul's rights to the Greek first and also to the Jew, there are no church planning movements in the Bible, and why has the church lost faith? Jackson is particularly concerned about theological contextualization. By understanding how the Bible uses honor and shame, he wants to equip the church to contextualize the gospel in a way that is both biblically faithful and culturally meaningful. He consistently writes on his blog, jacksonwu.org. He is a regular blogger for Training Leaders International and has guests written for Scott McKnight, 
Ed Setzer in the Mystio blog. He serves on the steering committee for Asian Asian American Theology Consultation for the Evangelical Theological Society. He, he also offers Chinese resources for free at wurong.org. People can follow him on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Dr. Wu, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Good to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. I've been looking forward to it. I'm glad to hear you've been looking forward to it. Now, tell us, since my audience might not know who you are, tell us a bit more about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Uh, well, uh, living in East Asia as I do, I saw the great uh, need for theological uh, education and training. And as I started thinking through uh, what the theological situation was uh, in East Asia, uh, I just started noticing how much uh, desire for uh, concern for face and honor, shame, collective identity, how much it mattered to everything, uh, for example, that you know Chinese care about. Well, as I read scripture, uh, I started seeing similar patterns. Uh, one of the people who've influenced me a lot is uh, uh, John Piper. And as I looked at uh, his stuff about you know God's glory, and I read a lot of Jonathan Edwards, and I thought, you know what? These two worlds need to get together. Mm-hmm. Uh, God's concern for his glory and then this concern for face and honor in Asian culture. And I thought, you know, let's, let's bring these together and see if there should be more if God's glory is that big of a deal in Scripture, there should, we should see this a lot more than people typically talk about. And sure enough, there's a lot of honor shame in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were growing up in, in America here, did you really think about honor and shame? Or, I mean, did your family raise you thinking about this? Or Not explicitly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, as, I, as I write in a few different places, all human cultures are honor shame cultures mm-hmm. in the respect that People are everywhere concerned with their social identity, mm-hmm. reputation, uh, authority. You know, these things are pervasive themes. So uh, my family and, and a lot of the subculture that I was around was very, very honor, shame oriented, even if mm-hmm. uh, even if it's not the words you use. You know, you think in American culture, uh, Southern culture, uh, the military, sports culture are very honor, shame oriented. Mm-hmm. I like how when you were speaking at the Evangelical Theological Society, and I'll just say ETS from now on, if I reference it again, that you used Facebook as an example of honor mm. shame, which it definitely is. I mean, you, you look at someone and say, wow, look at how many likes that person has. Look at how many friends that person has. And people want to build up a good reputation on Facebook. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. Yes, it's absolutely... Uh, Sometimes people say, well, the West is not a face culture. And I say, well, possibly the most important website in the world <laughs> says otherwise. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, people, you know, and people basically put, uh, stake their social worth uh, on that. Uh, yeah. and, and I think last year, well, no, it was this year, or no, last year's article in Christianity Today, the March edition with Andy Crouch, uh, really hits that home well. And how, honor, how social media is a really an inlet to honor shame in the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he impacts that really well. Yeah. Now, when we're living here in the West, we often have this idea, and I mean, there's some truth to it where we can tell people who have low self-esteem and such, which I think self-esteem is part of our individualized cultural period, and say, you know, you don't need to listen to whatever people think. Be your own person. Don't worry about what other people say. Don't worry about what your critics say. Etc. But I suspect that in the Far East and even in the Middle East, that's pretty unthinkable, isn't it? 
Yes, and the way I put it, and not try to put it too harshly, in some sense, that thinking is more naive than anything else, mm -hmm. because human identity is always, always formed by some community or multiple sets of, of communities, yeah. uh, our network or relationship. Mm -hmm. In the West, people tend to think of how we're different than everyone else. That, that makes up identity. Mm -hmm. Well, in the East, in non-Western cultures, people tend to make up their identity based on how they're the same, mm -hmm. whether it be hometown, uh, bloodline, whatever it may be. And the truth is it's both. Identity is, uh, you know, the way, that, the way the Chinese put it is there's the big me and the little me. Yeah. You know, the, the little me is me individually. The big me is who I am within my community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one reason I think I've kind of gravitated towards this is my wife and I both have Asperger's. We're on the autism spectrum. And I think this is a way we tend to naturally think. And we, we remember our reputations very well. If someone does something to wrong us, we remember that. We do not mm -hmm. trust that person again. And if someone treats us right, we want to honor them. We, we are lawyer to them. I mean, the saying is, if you treat us right, if you can make friends with us, we'll crawl through fire for you. Yeah, no, I totally understand that. I, uh, for better or for worse, I'm the same way. Cause sometimes I, I, I may not be as gracious to people who've hurt me in the past. <laughs> I understand. Now, now, when you talk about saving God's face, I mean, a lot of people could be curious. I was like, well, are we talking about God being embarrassed? Right? Are, are we shaming God? What, what do you mean exactly? Good question. Very good question. When we talk about face and honor and shame, face is simply a Chinese way of talking about honor and shame. Mm -hmm. And honor and shame have both an objective element and a subjective element. Most people only think of the psychological subjective part. Mm -hmm. But in, basically, honor and shame is about your social worth, mm -hmm. uh, how you're perceived social worth. And so in one group, say, for example, in the church, God is honored. But maybe in another group, he's dishonored. And mm -hmm. He has no face within that community. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, we shouldn't confuse the two. And so when we say that God loses face, we're not talking about him being embarrassed. We're talking about that he is being dishonored mm -hmm. by people. He's not being given the face. Or mm -hmm. He's uh, being you know, uh, dishonored in that way. So uh, uh, so that, that's what we mean. That when someone say you can't give God face because you can't lose face. But mm -hmm. if you think about the biblical language of glory, we say give God glory. Well, yeah. well, we're not saying that God lacks glory until I give it to him, because mm -hmm. we understand with glory language that there's an objective aspect that he is infinitely glorious. He can't lack glory, but there's another respect that we understand we give him glory subjectively. Yeah, we, we don't change God at right, all. That's right. this. It, it's kind of like C.S. Lewis once wrote something like, to think that you can diminish God's glory by not worshiping him is like thinking that the lunatic can put out my, the sun by writing darkness on his cell wall. Absolutely, absolutely. And so some people get nervous about honor shame language, thinking we're going to be subjective, and not at all. We're simply, uh, we're, we're saying nothing different than what, what we say in the Bible. We talk about giving God glory, giving Him praise. Now, you could tell me if I'm wrong in my terminology, but I think what we're talking about is the difference between ascribed honor and acquired mm -hmm. honor. And with ascribed mm -hmm. honor, God is a being of honor by virtue of who he is already, and that's unchanging. But his mm -hmm. reputation, how he is seen in the rest of the world, can change. Absolutely. And, and we all get that. You know, yeah. uh, a, a father's identity never changes. 
mm-hmm. always a father. But whether mm-hmm. or not he's honored as a father is a, a completely different matter. Uh, absolutely. Ben Witherington once said, I, I listen to a lot of his podcasts when he does, because he talks a whole lot about this honor shame thing. And in case you all can, you all can't see it yet, I am an honor shame junkie, as it were. But <laughs> when he's talked about how if you go to a culture like the biblical culture or the Middle East today or the Far East, that uh, your honor it's pretty much, it's kind of like paying our bills. Is like, that's how important it is over there. And except I'd say it's probably even more important, isn't it? I would, yeah, it's like, it's like your social credit card. Yeah. Uh, and so <laughs> anybody who's been to junior high school understands this dynamic, yeah. that your reputation tells you what you get away with and what, whether people will listen to you or not. Uh, and so um, this, this is one reason why I would completely agree with those people who say, let's, uh, make God's glory center to everything mm-hmm. because uh, it, it, people aren't thinking pragmatically what are you going to do for me they, if they know that you are worthy of honor they're going to pay attention and listen yeah. and this is something that even causes us problems with our foreign policy here in America today because when we talk about interacting with Muslim nations such we don't understand these people are usually operating on an honor shame principle as well and some of the things we might think are wonderful about you know they look and say you all are shaming yourselves greatly you are not worthy of being honored absolutely uh, and that's where it becomes very difficult uh, for people to uh, distinguish between or where it becomes especially critical to distinguish what is a biblically worthy of honor and what is more culturally worthy of honor mm-hmm. uh, because the two can easily get blended mm-hmm now, when you were just talking about how uh, things are, you were giving a little hint about how things are done in the West. And this is what we were talking about some before the show. Yes, before we, we usually chat before the show, you know, just to make sure everything's going well and such. And uh, one of the things I started talking about is, I think in your book you mentioned the four spiritual laws. And mm-hmm. no one's going to deny those have done a lot of good. They've got a lot of people to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to deny Bill Brightman very well. But there's a problem there because you know if imagine that I'm a non-Christian and you come up to me and you want to get me to become a Christian and say hey Nick I want you to know something God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life mm-hmm. where the problem is I'm the focus of that entirely it's mm-hmm. all about me and mm-hmm. in our culture the problem is we tend to think about ourselves way too much. Uh, I mean, N.T. Wright once said he can't imagine a, a herald from Rome going around saying, good news, Caesar is on the throne and he has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think part of the issue is the misunderstanding of law and scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas you think of it surely as a juridical, like uh, a judge on, on a docket against you know a single defendant. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not the best way to conceive of it's only a partial correct per, perception of the biblical law which is more of a covenant mm-hmm. and covenants create uh, a binding collective identity and so it's about who we are together uh, that doesn't diminish individual responsibility but it simply mm-hmm. acknowledges that we have there's a king that we are to follow and we are to honor him and it's about us following the king so uh, we're not saying that you know these things are, are bad but 
it, it is so partial that uh, partially true, or, or you know, it's only limited perspective that you, we can easily misrepresent the truth. That's one reason why mm-hmm. I sometimes say we compromise the gospel when we settle for truth. In mm-hmm. other words, when we settle for it's merely true. Yeah, uh, I'm thinking about how uh, yesterday I wrote a blog responding to a criticism of the new perspective on power, and how the author of this article I was responding was saying that. It calls into question the heart of the gospel, the, the uh, like justification by faith or the imputed righteousness of Christ. And I was thinking about, I'm sorry, but I think the heart of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus is our king now, and everything mm. else flows from that. I mean, we made the heart mm. of the gospel be about what God did, does for us, rather than what God did, rather than what God did in Jesus. Absolutely. Uh, and as you may recognize from my book, uh, I talk about how the uh, gospel gospel presentations in, in the Bible typically discuss, you know, four types of questions. And number one is, who is Jesus? Mm-hmm. You know, and what has he done? And the implication of that yeah. uh, is, why does he matter? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the salvation question. But see, that follows from what's more central. Uh, and then, of course, you have to say, well, how to respond? But uh, I think what we do is we focus on that third question, why does he matter? And then we just kind of just lightly touch on the who he is just in order to get to that part. But, mm-hmm. So we end up missing what's central. You know, when you start talking about the uh, who question, one aspect came to mind, it, it's a personal example for me about how we see authority is that my wife will have a habit of just browsing through Facebook and tell me about interesting stories and she'll read some claim to me and the first question I will ask 90% of the time many times is source who is telling <laughs> you this story because if there was some source that I would say sorry I don't trust that they are not a good source and some say okay that's a, that's a pretty good source I guess I can believe that one mm-hmm. and that that's the same question that is ultimately being asked when we have debates about Christianity such as who is Jesus? Who is God? Why should I take the claims of the Bible seriously? What authority is behind them? Absolutely. Uh, and I, an example I like to use is uh, when people talk about salvation, focus on that salvation, they frequently describe Jesus as a doctor mm-hmm. who heals us of our sin and whatnot. Well, you know, that's fine and true, but nobody is going to give their life allegiance and loyalty to their doctor who healed them right. from some disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the just that little metaphor change between doctor and king uh, has massive implications mm-hmm. for discipleship. Yeah, I mean, I'm not talking here about, you know, like the whole lordship, salvation, such. I mean, I think the way of salvation is pretty much the same, but there is a whole lot we've lacked about kingdom. I mean, we've, mm-hmm. my wife and I have had for the past two Saturdays in a row, we've had the Jehovah's Witnesses come by, which has been very entertaining for me. But I, I would say one thing they get right, they emphasize kingdom constantly. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, that, that is something we've missed, and I'm so thankful that writers like N.T. Wright have brought this out. And he's come to be a popular writer as well as books like a, How God Became King, and now he's got the Kingdom New Testament as well. I think, yeah, maybe, maybe people are starting to look at Jesus talked so much about the kingdom of God for a reason. Absolutely. And I think uh, one of the reasons why people sometimes get nervous about emphasizing it as much is because 
certain cold, certain connotations that come from theological debates in the past. Mm-hmm. Some people associate kingdom work with merely social, you know, yeah. justice or something of that nature, mm-hmm. uh, and those are false separations. And we shouldn't be af- not we shouldn't avoid biblical ideas simply because yeah. some people tend to use them in a limited way. Mm-hmm. And of course, we could say if we popular if we properly interpreted the kingdom ideas, a lot of the problems of what we term under social justice would really disappear. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, I think the more we do this, it also increases our evangelism. I'm thinking about the time Ari and I were in a church in Tennessee, and we were in a small group then, and I am just still kind of scandalized to this day by something one of the members said once who said, you know what? I'm saved. My children are saved. So I say, let's just sit back and wait for Jesus to come. And I thought, mm. my gosh, they are first off, if your kids go off to college, they might not stay saved in that way. And no, I don't want to... If you're someone out there listening and we have different perspectives on whether salvation is eternal or not, Calvinists would say never were saved Arminian they lost it so it doesn't really matter anyway but uh, not only could your kids be at risk here but there are other people out there with children as well and you live in a world that is technically your father's world mm, you, don't, mm. you don't go lax on your duty there absolutely uh, and, and that's why I, I, we have to emphasize uh the gospel is not simply a collection of a few doctrinal points, mm-hmm. but it really comes out of a, a, a royal story. Right. If there is no royal component mm-hmm. uh, to our understanding of the gospel, we've lost the gospel because the gospel in the ancient world fundamentally was a, a royal announcement. It was a, a political announcement, as, as it were. Most yeah. people don't realize that it had nothing to do with religion, per se, early on. Yeah. And so when the disciples used that word, they were not only drawing from the Old Testament language, which was also royal, but just the prominent language. So sometimes people are shocked when I say, Caesar preached the gospel when he went out and proclaiming that he was king, he was the boss. Yeah. I mean, you start off your book, I think it's at the start, you have the same that when we look at the, the narratives we tell today to get people salvation, we can start very good in the book of Genesis. And then... After the fall of Adam Eve, we jump straight ahead to the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And all that stuff in the middle in there is kind of like, that's, you know, added material. You don't you don't really need to know that. Uh, absolutely right. And mm-hmm. people will use it for illustration for Sunday school. Uh, but because people really don't know what to do with Israel, and they don't really get how the grand story fits together, across the board, that's what you get. Even when people say, uh, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. They go from fall to redemption, and what they mean redemption is uh, go right to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and then, because people will say, well, you know, nowadays people don't need to know all about Israel's history and Judaism and so forth and so on. And what I would say is that it's exactly the opposite, that you abstract who God is, rather than talking about how God reveals himself in concrete history, which mm-hmm. is the way God always self-introduces himself in the Old Testament. Yeah. You know, I am the God who rescued Israel from from uh, Egypt and so forth. Mm-hmm. It was never just, I am omni this and omni that, you know? Yeah. You know, we, you know, I, I love uh, philosophers and such, but we take the God of philosophers and think, well, 
that's who God is, and aside from maybe for Trinity and such, the Bible doesn't really tell us anything new about who God is. But it does. It tells us an immense deal about who God is. Mm-hmm. And so in China, for example, whenever people talk about God in those terms, philosophers, to broader systematic theology terms, the automatic thing people say is, well, what does that have to do with me? Yeah. But whenever you convey... Uh, what God has done in history in concrete terms, mm-hmm. uh, they it actually becomes practical for them. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually counterintuitive the way a lot of people think that if you talk about Israel too specifically, you'll become irrelevant. Actually, it becomes more relevant. Mm-hmm. So let, let's kind of look at how we would begin this kind of presentation. We, we start with the story of creation. What difference does creation make really to the point of salvation? Well, uh, creation is absolutely fundamental, not simply as a first assumption, mm-hmm. but in one sense, it's very true to say that if you are preaching creation properly in the Bible, you are preaching the gospel. Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds like an overstatement, but uh, in the book, I go in a lot more detail. Um, but essentially, again and again and again, the Bible uses monotheism and creation as uh, the fundamental announcement of the gospel, Old Testament and New. Mm-hmm. And this is why. In the ancient Near East, including the biblical worldview, the, to say that God was creator or is creator is to say, is to infer that he is king, the mm-hmm. supreme king. Right. And so that the whole world is his kingdom. Uh, and so you see this, I think I list like 10 different ways in scripture that the doctrine of creation and monotheism is used, and particularly in gospel, in a lot of gospel contexts. Mm-hmm. So it's not simply how many gods are there, okay, one, now we can move past that. But it has everything to do with his kingship. And I think we have to be clear also. When talk, when, if you teach the doctrine of creation properly, we don't also mean the whole thing about, well, how old do you think the earth is? And that's a good question to discuss, but it's also irrelevant to the whole kingship motif, isn't it? Absolutely. And this is, uh, this is why we have to always make sure we realize that the Bible might not answer the questions or emphasize the questions that we want asked or emphasized. Right. And so when when you see the prophets, for example, emphasize uh, that God is the one creator, uh, again and again and again, you see royal language about how he reigns and overthrows kingdoms, and so therefore all the nations are his. Hmm. That is the big E on the E chart, so to speak. Not simply that there's one God as opposed to, say, two or three or four. Mm-hmm. Now, I would like to let people know if you're listening and this does intrigue you we did do a debate last year I think it was on the age of the earth and also I've done two interviews with John Walton on Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3 and both of those attack on religious kinds of issues as well so if you're curious about that I'd suggest going there but the whole kingship thing I mean it, it is tied in still to monotheism because there's a whole radical difference between monotheism and polytheism relevant to the story of the gospel. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because in the ancient world, who your king was determined who your god was and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So they, they cannot be separated the way modern thinkers, uh, you know, think it. Yeah, we've started attending a church here in Atlanta and we had a the first time we went the pastor was talking about Elijah on Mount Carmel with verses of prophets of Baal 
And I'm wondering when I, I hear something, I wonder how many people in the audience are aware this was really an honor challenge taking place. Mm. Mm. Oh, absolutely. It's whose guy could really demonstrate their worth and power. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, when we get to creation, then, the fall, it, it, it's kind of essentially when Adam and Eve fall, I've told people that it and every other sample is, in many ways, divine treason, isn't it? Mm, yeah, that's, that's excellent. Yeah. Uh, which is a little different than simply saying you broke God's law. Yeah. Uh, because uh, um, it, it fundamentally, in any covenant law or kingdom law, it's, it's loyalty to the king. Yeah. And keep in mind that he gave God, him them commands, but not an explicit law, per se. You know, that didn't come to Moses. Right. So we have to make sure we get our biblical categories right. Uh, that you know the law is a very specific thing, uh, and and uh, you know it came with uh, with Moses. And we aren't talking about just this broad general human law. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes helps us understand better what sin is, because yeah. sometimes we think, like in Chinese culture, the word for sin has been translated in the past as crime. Mm-hmm. And so people will say to people, you know, you're a sinner. But what they're hearing is you're a criminal. You're a criminal. Mm-hmm. And Chinese will have no idea what you're talking about because they haven't broken laws. Right. And so they don't really understand this because the metaphor that's being used to explain sin has been so limited. Now, it's, it's a biblically true thing, yeah. but that is not the merely mm-hmm. the way that you know, sin is described. Yeah. And what I've said about sin, I'm saying, is because ultimately Adam and Eve are in this garden and they've been put there by the king are supposed to rule it as the king has told them and they're pretty much saying yeah um, forget it we're going to run this place our own way and we are going to be the ones in charge and ultimately every time we do something wrong we're saying the exact same thing again because you know we're pretty much saying hey God you either don't know what you're talking about or you're not capable of stopping me or you don't see this something like that I and mean, it's a very serious charge then Absolutely, usurping, you know, mm-hmm. there's a whole narrative behind it, there's a whole, you know, worldview behind it, rather than just, you broke some kind of rule. It's a little bit, you know, it's bigger than just that. Mm-hmm. The way, the, the verse, ahead. I don't know if you uh, recall, but in, in, I speak in Romans, for example, uh, Paul uses honor, shame language, talking about sin, incredible, incredible, an incredible amount. My favorite place to look, to help illustrate what you're point, talking to is Romans 2, 23. Yeah where it says that those who boast in the law uh, dishonor God by breaking the law. And mm-hmm. if you look at it, the main verb in the sentence is dishonor, not the breaking the law is simply a prepositional phrase. That breaking the law was simply a way to dishonor God. Mm-hmm. And the next verse quotes Old Testament scripture saying that they make the Gentile or the nations uh, basically blaspheme God because of them. So it's God's name. So it's all of honor and shame are fundamental to understanding what sin is, which is why in Romans 1, in Paul's long tirade against human unrighteousness, you don't see legal language, but you see again and again and again the fact that they would not honor God, they didn't recognize him as God, like, in other words, like you know, acknowledge him as God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm thinking about how we also in Romans 2, it talks about God will give eternal life to those who seek glory, honor, and immortality. And, you know, we'd look and say, you shouldn't be seeking those things. That's self-serving. In the biblical world, that's all you sought. 
Absolutely. And, and the truth is, it's still all we seek. And that's not a bad thing. That's the way we're created. Even right. God seeks honor. Yeah. Uh, the, it, the reason is, what kind of honor? Right. Uh, what kind of, of glory are you seeking? Is it one derived from God, focusing on God? Or is it one that all terminates on you? I like what J.P. Morden has said to people about he teaches, and something we all need to keep in mind. So you're here to serve a name, not to make one. Mm, absolutely. And yeah. so, yeah, absolutely. To, to think that we could tell people not to seek honor is yeah. is just going against even um, uh, you know the biblical teaching itself. Because you know, even even John 17, uh, it says that Jesus gives us His glory. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something he wants us to have. Yeah, or you can even think about the, the times he gives advice about what to do at a banquet. He says, you know, if you're invited somewhere, don't sit at the highest place because if you sit there, then the host might come and say, man, this seat's been reserved mm. for somewhere else and you'll be sent to a lower place and you'll be shamed. He says, but if you go, sit at the lowest place and then your, your host can come and say, mm. friend, move up to a better place and you mm. will be honored. I mean, Jesus is pretty much saying, mm. here is how you get honor absolutely the whole idea that you're getting in the gospels particularly is this overturning of honor shame standards mm -hmm. it's not a undermining of honor shame it's a changing of the standards so that humility and mm -hmm. and uh, love are honored above you know bravado and you know individualized focus some people could be listening to this morning okay how is seeking this honor though different from pride well, pride terminates on yourself and your own self-importance, mm -hmm. whereas the kind of honor that we're speaking here uh, seeks to not get praise from uh, fundamentally from other people, though that may or may not come, yeah. but from God. And I yeah. particularly have in mind, for example, uh, Romans 2.29, where the one who has the changed heart has, gets praise from God. And so it doesn't mean that you don't care about your community, yeah. because the community is, a, is supposed to be a reinforcement of God's honor shame standard. Mm -hmm. So it's not a, you know, me and God individual again, but mm -hmm. it's what is the source of our, uh, of our boasting? And, and keep in mind, boasting in, in Scripture is a neutral term. It could be good or bad, yeah. but that's a boasting in Christ together. You know, the, the way I've done this is I've followed the advice of my old pastor back in Knoxville where I told him about a good met a good compliment I got from someone once and he said you know Nick here's what I've done I've set up a folder on my computer and I've called it my encouragement folder and when I receive those messages I save them in there and then later on when I'm discouraged I'm wondering what difference I'm making and such I go and I open that again and it reminds me and the thing that I do is for me I mean I'm not saying I always do this perfectly of course but in, when people give me those compliments and such and until you're out there that if you know someone in ministry they do need your thanks and appreciation i had someone message me and say you probably hear this all the time but and i think said no actually i don't hear it all the time it, it's very rarely said but mm. they actually need to hear it and whenever i go back and look at it i mean it could be tend to get prideful but usually i just look and think you know it it's amazing the way god can use someone and ultimately it becomes humbling mm -hmm. absolutely and in fact we're we're commanded mm -hmm. uh in both romans 13 and hebrews to honor those in authority so yeah. it's, it's it can hardly be called a a, a sin or, or or you know a the pride 
only pride-inducing, you know, mm-hmm. when it actually tells us to give honor to people. Mm-hmm. I've told my wife, Allie, also before that something that I do to humble myself sometimes if I thought I was getting too prideful, which I haven't had to do since I've gotten married. I think wives are very good at making sure you don't get pride for I'm not sure if you've noticed that, but I think they are. But yes. I, uh, if I was ever in one of those states, I'd go and I'd go in my bedroom and I'd close the door and I'd just lie on my bed and I'd say as much as I could to build myself up. I'd talk about all the books I've read, all the work I've done, all the people I know. All the compliments I receive, etc., etc., etc. Just build myself up as much as I can, and then finish it off and saying, "And who am I that I deserve to get any of this whatsoever?" Because it'd be a reminder that everything you have under this kingdom system, everything you have comes from a king, and he doesn't owe you anything. Mm. Absolutely, it's derived. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when we go to the biblical story, okay, we see that this war has been created, and it's been created for us to live in, and a place for us to give glory to the king. And then we kind of fall and screw things up. And there's this nation that shows up called Israel. What what point do they really serve for us today? Uh, well. It, with respect to some of these, uh, the things we're talking about, I think that they uh, help us to see how God actually works in history practically in people's lives. Um, mm-hmm. So you're not, uh, so that you realize this is a God who enters into the world. He's not a far distant God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I think that's one of the one of the biggest things. Uh, two, we get uh, glimpses of what it what it means to be a, a collective people of God. Mm-hmm. And, and particularly for people influenced by the West, we don't understand collective identity very well right. uh, and loyalty and whatnot. And so I think that we get pictures of what that's supposed to be like, um, you know, which we have precedent for in the New Testament, that in some sense Israel was a model, uh, broad, broadly speaking, in term, for how the church is a CSL, for example, a uh, holy priesthood and so forth and so on. And, you know, those would be at least two of the two of the things I would say today. Now, where, that they help make sense of the gospel. Yeah, where are you talking about then for our audience when you speak about collective identity? It's our what is our identity in relationship to a group? Mm-hmm. So, for example, sports culture, people will say, "Hey, we won a championship," or "We lost," or whatever else. And you want to say, uh, "We? Well, yeah. you weren't on the field." Yeah, you know. Uh, you know, when we think about patriotism, you know, people think our nation, our this or whatever. That's all collective identity. Yeah. All the modders. I, I think I know it's usually with a sports culture. It's we won or they lost. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You distance yourself very quickly after they lose. Absolutely. We intuitively get collective identity because part of the way collective identity works is that you share in the honor and shame uh, of the group. And so you distance yourself if you don't like it. And this also could take place even within our own families. Like when we talk about, for instance, a black sheep in a family that no one else really wants to talk about or someone in the family does something and the other members have embarrassment because of it. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So in, in that respect, uh, honor and shame become a big part of loving other people because mm-hmm. you realize that what you do reflects on others. Mm-hmm. Not only does it reflect on Christ, but it reflects on our brothers and sisters uh, in the church. Yeah, and could that be part of the reasons we have a hard time with collective identity is because if you were a collective identity in Israel, there was nowhere to go but the people mm-hmm. of Israel. Today, in our culture, if you have a problem with a church, well, okay, pack up and move out down the street. There's another church right there. You can fit right in again. And mm-hmm. being cut off from the group just doesn't really have that same kind of emphasis then. Absolutely. Uh, and so... <laughs> And and so the church becomes basically like a volunteer organization. Yeah. And and one of the reasons I think that that uh, happens is it's actually instilled, I think, in the DNA of of the gospel that is traditionally preached, mm-hmm. where it's about just you and God. Uh, and so logically speaking, there's really no place for the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, the church is just an, an add-on, practically speaking, or logically speaking, because the gospel, the way it's taught, doesn't have anything to do with the church. Mm-hmm. Now. From a broader perspective, people will say, well, sure it does. Well, that's if you look at reading the rest of the Bible. But the problem is that's not the gospel we preach, uh, where we have to change our fundamental allegiance and, and loyalty and identi- group identification. You know, that's part of what conversion is, is that we switch from one group identity to another, of that of Christ's people. Yeah. I mean, you were talking about the church becoming a volunteer organization. Coming that uh, just... Yesterday, I think it was, my wife and I were driving, and we were talking about a story about how I went to, we went back to Knoxville once and went to a church that I'd, been, I'd attended before I left. And we were really in financial straits at the time. We still are, but it was much worse then. And I remember that because it was actually my birthday, so it should have been a happy day, but instead, we heard a sermon talk about how they finished a fundraising campaign. And that was fundraising of $2 million to be spent on the ministry of basketball. And I was like, mm. what? Are you kidding me? Are you seriously mm. kidding me with this? And uh, how, I mean, I understand church is going to have interact socially through sports, and that can be a good way, but I'm thinking two million is too much to spend. And uh, I was telling you, I said, give me one one hundredth of that. I would put it to great use for Christianity. And give most of us in the apologetics field one one hundredth of that. We will do so much with it. And unfortunately, we tried to talk with the pastor afterwards, and he just didn't really have too much time for us, and so... We left, and we haven't been back since, and I told her, honey, the problem is, the church is pretty much just becoming a social club where everyone gets together, and hopefully somewhere in the midst of it, we're talking about Jesus some, instead of actively going out and doing something. Well, and, and I would add to that, even good, healthy churches, the problem can be that every single sermon or message or text comes down to evangelism. Yes. Now, evangelism is super important, yep. but what you what you see... In scriptures, this constant thrust of being the church. Mm-hmm. So it's true that in one hand, the church is the only organization that exists for those outside of it. But, but I think we've taken that far, you know, to extreme, to where we start neglecting our our true family members inside. Mm-hmm. And so people will be more loyal to say, you know, their their bloodline 
than they are to the people of God, and they see that as the virtue. But scripturally, Jesus constantly challenges that notion. In fact, just this morning, I, w- I read a chapter of the Old Testament and New Testament every morning. And this morning I was in Matthew, and in the 12th chapter, it has a story where someone, where Jesus is speaking, and someone comes to him and says, your mother and brothers and sisters are here to see you. And he says, who are my mother and brother and sisters? Those who mm. do for where my father in heaven are my mother and brother and sisters. And mm. the rest we look and think, where is Jesus? Jesus is taking something and he's turning into an object lesson. That's cute. But mm. that was mind-blowing to say in Jesus' culture, wasn't it? Absolutely, and it still is throughout the non-Western world, without a doubt. Uh-huh. You know, I, I'm thinking about how uh, Nabil Qureshi, a friend, when he wrote his uh, book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, it's a great story about how he he left Islam and came to Christianity, and how he says that when he became a Christian, he was very, very depressed. And I don't mean before, I mean after he became a Christian. Right. Because he said, I wish I could have become a Christian and died immediately at that point. I mean, he doesn't mm. wish that now, but he wished it then because he said, because when I told my family that I had become a Christian, that it ripped their hearts out. They felt so dishonored and such. that I wish I could have just become a Christian and died and no one would have ever known the better. Mm. Because, I mean, it mm. was such a big deal. Right. And, and, it, and it grieves me that we don't equip people with a, a clear gospel message to help them know that um, they're not trying to betray. They're actually trying to bring together the, the full human family of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not that we're trying to say, hey, you know, leave your family as if they're not important, but we're yeah. actually inviting them to join the true family. Yeah, and I mean, at the risk of going a little bit political here, but, in, but still the gospel is entirely political as well. But uh, uh, I was in discussion with some people just recently on Facebook and asked me, well, what about situations of the government aid for people who really need it? And yes, there are people who really need it. And I've come to the point over and over and said, you know, if a church had been doing its job all alone, we wouldn't be depending on the state to do the work of a church. The state shouldn't be doing this work to begin with. It should be the church that's doing the work of charity. Yeah, and John Barkley uh, and his work has done a, a lot on this to say that the early church gave knowingly, knowing that they would be taken advantage of. Mm. Uh, they did what they could to limit it, but that's just a part of uh, radical love. In, in fact, something radical about the way the early church gave is I mean, it, it's my understanding that if we, I mean, we live in an apartment complex, so we don't have this kind of thing, but if we had Asian neighbors move in, if we went over one weekend and mowed their lawn for them, next weekend they'd be over there asking, hey, can we paint your house for you? <laughs> because the whole thing is, when you give to someone, it is never just giving for the sake of giving. You give with the idea that something is supposed to be given back in return. Absolutely, and and a lot of Westerners are uncomfortable with it, especially when they come overseas. They constantly interpret it as bribing or manipulation. Mm-hmm. Well, gift giving is the way you establish relationships. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's they say, well, I don't know them. Why are they give me this gift? It's because they want to get to know you. They want to befriend you, and it's a constant reciprocation back and forth. So the relationship is deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, but I find again and again Westerners are very uncomfortable with this because they feel like I gotta pay them back, I gotta pay them back, I gotta do something so I don't feel in debt to them. Yeah, 
you know, I, I think people who say that they don't understand how this works, give you a clear analogy, guys, of how it works. How many of you guys go out there on that first date going to pick up that lady? You better have a flower or something in your hands when you knock on the door. <laughs> yeah, it's just some token of saying, hey, you know, you mattered to me or, you know, I want us to, you know, be better, have a better relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that's also the thing that's going on in Philippians 4, though, as well, because when the Philippian church sends a gift to Paul, Paul doesn't want to be in a position of being in debt to anyone. And so what he says is, what you give to me, I am giving to God, and so it's ultimately a gift to God, and you're in a relationship with God. Yes, so they all are indebted to God. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yes. And it's also something that uh, Bruce Molina brought this out in his book on the New Testament War, that uh, when Jesus is out speaking somewhere, and he gets a compliment from someone, Jesus never says anything like, thank you, or mm-hmm. anything like that. He He's always quick to redirect the compliment. And that's because... In that culture, if someone gave you a compliment, it wasn't trying to be a nice guy. It was, I'm trying to build up my reputation with you. It's a trap in some ways. Yeah, Jerome Nary's done some work on this as well, where you know people didn't say thank you in the same way that we do now, as if, okay, it's been, my debt's been paid off. You did this, I said thank you, we're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that would be almost insulting. Uh, Rather, the way you express thanks was by, you know, giving mm-hmm. public acknowledgement and praise to people out loud so that, you know, others around them saw how, what kind of a good people they were. Now, when we go back to Israel, one of the themes of, that we've often lost was because we, we talk about creation, but we've really lost in many ways the theme of covenant mm. with people. Mm. I mean, and the, the closest example we usually come to covenant today is marriage and unfortunately here in the west we also live in a great divorce culture where even marriage which is supposed to be a covenant doesn't really seem like much of a covenant anymore oh absolutely and so it's no wonder that people uh, don't see the significance of the theme um it, the covenant is probably the most important uh thing that's neglected on a routine basis uh-huh. and with without you know, you talk to the average church person, they couldn't tell you anything about what the Abrahamic covenant is, uh, yet Paul calls the Abrahamic covenant the gospel in Galatians 3. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the interesting things about the covenant is that when you read the Psalms, many times, for instance, it's not the people often talking about how they hope they're being faithful to the covenant. Usually they're saying, God, here's what I've done, here's what I've done. The question they're usually asking is, hey, God, are you going to remain faithful to the covenant? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's frequently there. And, and people get uncomfortable with that. Uh, but, I mean, you can't get away from that. That is a common thrust in the Psalms because uh, people don't want to bind God as if he can't just do whatever he wants. Yeah. But here's the deal, that once God has made a covenant commitment, he is honor-bound. Yeah. Uh, to fulfill his promises. Yeah. He, even at the cost of his own son. Yeah. I, I said earlier that God doesn't owe us anything. Technically, that's true, but the exception comes when he makes a covenant with us. He owes mm-hmm. us what he's kept. 
Right. Not not in an inherent sense like we have we we have obligated God, but God has yeah. obligated Himself. Right. And you've talked some about the book of Romans, and uh, I actually just got done turning my paper today, in course, with a course on Romans today on my master's project. And when I look at Romans, a lot of that, I think, is still asking the same question. Has God remained faithful to his covenant? And that's why Romans 9 through 11 is in there, because it's asking, hey, you know, if God remained faithful to his covenant, what mm-hmm. about those people he established that covenant with? They don't seem to be part of this too much. What about them? How can God be the covenant people if he's broken, supposedly, his covenant with them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, uh, the covenant is all about the character of God. And if you're yeah. going to ask somebody to be, give allegiance to Jesus mm-hmm. King, yeah. th- there might, there's very few things more important to know than was he faithful. It's not just enough to know that he loved me. Well, because, you know, my grandmother loves me. Yeah. But when you're talking about being faithful, you're also talking about, as in Romans 4, does he have the power to bring about what he has promised? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know it. One of the questions my wife will usually ask me is, I mean, she wants to know, like, why do you love me? And things like that. And those are questions that we wonder. But then the separate question is, you're never going to leave me, are you? And, of course, I would say, no. Never. And the reason I tell her, then over and over, my son was going to say, honey, I made a covenant to you. Mm. And I am honoring my covenant. And I, I get really angry sometimes when I see how quickly people go down the path of divorce and there are some cases where I think divorce could be a necessity unfortunately but I still say even in those cases it is a sad sad necessity and no one should be rejoicing at that because when that happens that means someone has betrayed the covenant so much that you have to get away from them I think that if we preach the gospel in a biblically faithful manner, all of a sudden you see practicalities like that where people understand what it means to stick it out in marriage and what graciousness in marriage uh, means because all of a sudden the covenants in the Bible become prominent. And mm-hmm. rather than, say, the cross just being a mere illustration for how marriage should be, uh, it actually starts to make sense why it actually does represent uh, the gospel. It's a constant theme throughout scripture I mean the most the biggest analogy I'd say that shows up frequently in the Bible more than anything else has to be a marriage ceremony God mm-hmm. and Israel Jesus and the church the two are, are just so perfectly parallel and you got the whole sum of songs right in the middle that's all yeah. about the covenant taking mm-hmm. place and I mean I, I, I tell guys getting ready to get married getting ready to get married say I'm gonna go ahead and let you know you don't have a clue, okay? You really don't. And once you get married, it will be one of the biggest lessons in theology you ever get. You will probably learn more about theology from your marriage than you ever learned in seminary. <laughs> yes, definitely a practical theology lesson. Mm-hmm. But you ask, if you ask the average person, they have uh, the average person has no idea that covenant is that much related to the, to the gospel. They see it more as mere theology, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't know how covenants work. Um, but the truth is, if we don't get how covenants work, we 
plainly don't get uh, the gospel, at least as the biblical writers present it. In the biblical culture, then, what did it mean when someone broke the covenant? Well, the standard covenant formula, at least, for example, with you know people and God, it would be one of death. Whoever broke the covenant was worthy of death. Mm-hmm. So it was very binding in that sense. Uh, one's entire worth and character was based on whether or not you kept it, um, which is uh, why it's so significant when, that you see God entering in, taking the initiative to enter into covenant. And, you know, for example, in Acts, uh, or not Acts, uh, Genesis 15, where God's the one who goes through the, the divide animal pieces, where essentially he says, I die if I break right. this covenant with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's huge. That, that's, that's significant. It's unprecedented. Yeah. And when you look at the way the Gospels preached all throughout the New Testament, you can't, it's hard to find one that doesn't have some kind of explicit or implicit reference to covenant. Yeah, when you start talking about the penalty being death, I immediately jumped to that passage in Genesis, just where you went to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I've told people about, you know, it's something interesting about both parties were supposed to pass through the divided animals. And the whole idea was, if I break this covenant, may what happened to the animals happen to me. Both mm-hmm. were supposed to pass through it, but when you look at the account, you don't see Abraham passing through it. It's only God who passes through. Mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely. And so it's uh, it's unconditional. It, God will bring it about uh, for his for His own namesake. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that becomes one reason for confidence that we have uh, and we also see, you know, the the, the nature of his kingdom because uh, these various covenants are all give little snippets into the kingdom he's establishing. Abraham, for example, said that all nations will be a part of his kingdom. So mm-hmm. it talks about the scope of his kingdom. So these various themes are all interrelated. And that that's a problem also Israel got themselves into a lot of times, unfortunately. He said, we are the chosen ones, we are the, the people God has, and... In the rest of the world where, you know, they're just on the outside there. And mm. God never meant it to be that way, did he? No, absolutely. And that's why Paul in, you know, Galatians 3 says that the Abrahamic covenant is the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, because all, uh, he's announcing his victory uh, over all nations, so that all nations belong to this kingdom. Now, and I've asked this question again and again. The average person, I say, can you right now, according to your understanding of the gospel, explain Galatians 3.8, how the Abrahamic covenant is the gospel. And again and again, people say, I know, I really can't. Well, that tells me that uh, either Paul's got a problem or we've got a problem. And I'm going to say that it's us has the problem. Yeah, I, I think I'll agree with you on that one. And I like how, in fact, you tie in, in your book monotheism to the fact that there was one gospel. And you make the argument that Paul says, Hey, if there's only one God, there can only be one gospel. Mm, absolutely. It's amazing how often I see this theme repeated in Scripture. Uh, in Romans 3, for example, uh, I think First Timothy, uh, a couple other places, uh, Galatians, that mm-hmm. the logic is this. Because there is one God, therefore he is king of all nations, uh, of the whole world. That means that his people are not merely Jews. Mm-hmm. If they're not merely Jews, that means you don't have to obey the law, the Mosaic law, to become God's people. Mm-hmm. Well, so that means that we are not justified to declare God's people 
by works of the law, but rather by faith. Mm-hmm. And so the sequence goes really clear from there being one God, one king, and then therefore who are his people. Well, it's not Jewish, so it's not the law, therefore it's by faith. Mm-hmm. And I think Romans three twenty nine and 30 is the most explicit place that this makes it clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're at around the halfway point, so I'd like to mind let people know about who's going to be on the show next time. And I'm saying next time this time instead of next week because I'd said that Richard Balkum was unable to make it to us last Saturday. Well, the good news is he's going to be able to make it with us Monday, and we are going to be recording with Richard Balkum on Monday. So the next podcast you see after this one in your feed should be my interview with Richard Balkum. Coming up. We're going to be talking about his response to Bart Ehrman in his latest book, on Bart Ehrman's latest book, Jesus Before the Gospels, and we'll probably be touching a bit on the classic book Gawkham wrote ten years ago via Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, which there is a, <coughs> a tenth anniversary edition of that book coming out. So next time, Richard Gawkham is going to be here on the Deeper Waters podcast. We're looking for that one now. We got Dr. Jackson Wu here. We're talking about one gospel for all nations. Mm. You know that that whole argument that you gave it, it, it's it, it's just something we want to think about because Paul says that if there's one gospel, if there's one God, there's only going to be one way you're justified through Him. I mean, he would think, well, in the face of it, our modern pluralism makes no sense, would he? Mm, yeah, yeah, not not at all. Mm. Uh, in fact, some people think that. Uh, in order to have peace and harmony in in the world, you have to basically uh, let everybody believe what they want to believe and and don't make any kind of definitive statements. And Paul has works the other way around. The only way you're really going to have uh, peace, harmony among people is when you follow the one true God, because mm-hmm. uh, He unites them. Otherwise, you have various gods uh, and their corresponding communities starting to battle out about who's really better. Because ultimately, uh, there's going to be disagreements about who's right. You know, ironically, since I brought up the Muslim world, or, I mean, this is something that the Muslim world understands very well. We say, yeah, we want a world of peace, and that peace is going to be when everyone worships Allah, so you all better get in line. Yeah, you know, the verbiage uh, sounds sounds similar, but the whole way of going about it is completely different. Yeah. Rather than, you know, being militaristic, it's a one of sacrificial love. Yeah. Uh, and so... Don't let the language confuse you. Right. right. It, but, you know, I, I just can't imagine if, how it would be if we in the church had as much zeal and passion for sharing the love of God as the Muslims do for sharing the jihad of Allah. You know, I mean, it, it'd be, we'd be incredible. Yeah, uh, certainly, certainly I can't disagree with that. Yeah, I was uh, with someone recently. We were talking about how things are here in America. He said, Nick, what do you think needs to be done to change things? And I said, the solution to our problems here in America is very simple. The church has to be the church. We have to do what Jesus told us to do. And as soon as we all really start doing it and taking it seriously, then we will see the revolution that we need. But until then, we're not going to see it. And the Great Commission still holds today. The thing is, well, that we said, oh, we got a point where, where we got someone in the church, we got them saved, 
that's it. That's the end of the story. I mean, it's like saying we got someone to the wedding altar. We got them to say I do. That's it. That's the end of the story. No, the story's just beginning then. Well, the example I frequently mm-hmm. give is is you think about like if you're someone with a Navy SEAL, mm-hmm. uh, that when they get uh, chosen for the group, no one says, well, okay, I can take it easy now. Well, actually, mm-hmm. you're being chosen to be a part of the group has actually now made your life harder. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it, you've been chosen for a certain mission. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, uh, if you ever read, like, say, Navy SEAL literature, everything is about the group, the team, working together. And that is uh, still just not the fundamental perspective uh, of believers. And so I don't think you're going to see these things like, you know, be the church and doing what he says until you have that community identity. Because the truth is, is that these things are reinforced, These uh, this perspective and worldview and these convictions are reinforced in community. Mm-hmm. And individuals themselves don't do that. And maybe that is one of the reasons why it is important that churches do have groups that meet together throughout the week instead of just coming together on Sunday, but just having people meet in one another's homes, and if they can really talk about the issues that matter, instead of usually what happens is it turns into a lot of times just a big self-help group, then we we can do I mean, of course there's a good place for counseling and healing and things of that sort, but I mean, we need to follow the scripture path of encouraging one another to good works, encouraging one another to do evangelism, talking about not just the application of a text, but the meaning of a text. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, I think, for one thing, you have to have, uh, first off, a lot of intentionality. Mm-hmm. Because op- when you, people are not used to opening up their homes and having people over for dinner, um, there, there remains a constant distance. Mm-hmm. And so I think one thing you talk about meeting home, that's a big deal. And even if it's just in a social respect that you are letting them into your so-called private space. But also you have to be intentional about what you talk about and uh, intentionally, so to speak, losing face by talking about struggles so that ultimately God gets face. Because that's what we, God gets face when we lose face so that he is seen sufficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's where, uh, where you know, the real life of, of the church happens. But... Um, so many people are very, very protective of of their private space and their private time and their own reputation, mm-hmm. uh, and ultimately, you know, that undermines be- what it means to be the church. You know, here is an example of uh, how we set up to start that we can jump so quickly from the far to the Jesus story immediately, and say where people don't have time, they don't have a, they don't need to know all about Israel and such. We've been doing this interview for a little over an hour, and now I'm just getting to a point where I'm saying, okay, what role does the Jesus part play in all of this? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe uh, maybe narrow down, because you talk about how does Jesus affect all this. Uh, yeah. I could answer that theologically. I could answer that, who knows, you know, yeah. different ways. Well, how would you start it? I mean, we've talked about God, we've talked about creation, we've talked about Kevin, we've talked about Israel. Now, someone, let's suppose we're just going to say, and now I'm going to tell you about Jesus. I mean, how would you go from there? Well, let's, let's put in context how these things fit together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned creation, covenant, and kingdom. Right. In my book, I talk about how those are the three framework themes of the gospel. That, without exception, the Bible always uses at least one of those themes to talk about the gospel. And Jesus is where you see the three come together. Mm-hmm. Because the creator, king, fulfills his covenant promises of establishing his kingdom throughout the whole world 
through his his anointed king Jesus. Uh, mm-hmm. So he's apex at all. He's not simply just um, uh, just one more story along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, people immediately ask me, well, how does this relate to say atonement or salvation or very, these various things? And that's the reason for the name of my book, uh, my first book, Saving God's Face, because fundamentally, Jesus dies for God, for right. His name's sake, to bring mm-hmm. Him honor, and also so that God keeps his promises. Mm-hmm. If God does not keep his promises, he's a liar and he's not righteous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that sense, he dies to give God's face. He saves God's face. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he also, as in, you know, very explicitly, imputes, gives his his honor to us. And I'm thinking of John 17. Mm-hmm. You know, we, People talk a lot about righteousness imputation, but here we have explicitly in uh, John 17 that Jesus imputes his glory to us. Now, just mm-hmm. imagine if I went to a church and I said, "I have Jesus' glory." People call me a heretic and you know boot me out. But <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I can understand this understanding. But yeah. I, my point is to say these are huge things that Jesus says that we tend to overlook. I, I'm thinking right now at John Piper. You talk about her has made a big deal out of that. Luke twelve thirty two. If you're not little flock, it is God's pleasure to give you the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And we can read over that so quickly in our morning devotions and such and realize, wait, wait, what is that? What is that? God's giving me a kingdom? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, giving giving us the kingdom. And it's it has become unfortunately sad that in Christian culture, humility uh, is only seen by self-abasing, by saying how bad and terrible we are. Yeah. But we rob God of his glory when we don't talk about these ways that he has honored us and the way he is remove shame and he has blessed us and changed our identity one of the biggest books that helped me with a lot of spiritual healing I had to do in my life once was uh, David Siemens's book called um, Healing for Damaged Emotions and he talks a little bit about how we can do this thing where someone will sing beautifully for a church service and someone goes and say oh that was a wonderful song you did and the person will say thanks but it was the Lord and he says, yeah, you know, the Lord used you, but you know what? You were the one up there doing the singing. There was no righteousness in saying, it wasn't mm-hmm. me. Yes, it was you. You were the one that was used. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think that we um, we don't give God the honor due when we, when we don't acknowledge the fact that God is bringing about change in our lives. Yeah. You know, uh, we're not, as one as one of pastor once said, we're not uh, costume jewelry, you know, who just look nice on the outside and are really mm. worthless. We're just tarnished silver, and we need to rejoice in that. Uh, and that's not pride. Yeah. Uh, that's, an, that's encouragement. Yeah. And, you know, when we're talking about the atonement, also what you are just saying, I, I'm remembering, I know I referenced him a few times, but, yeah, my wife and I were actually at a Muslim-Christian debate a few weeks ago where it was great on did Jesus rise from the dead, and then it the moderator opened it up so it could be a discussion between everyone. He just called on various people and let them speak. Such so yeah, I spoke quite a few times there. And I had an answer to this when I gave it, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, because some people were like, you know, you said Jesus died to save God's face. A lot of people mm-hmm. say, well, what kind of God is that? You have to have a son die for him so he can make you right. Why can't God just forgive. Isn't it better of God to just forgive instead of having to 
have his son tortured? Well, uh, you open up a can of questions that I will undoubtedly answer insufficiently and, or, <laughs> and a- adequately. Uh, <laughs> so uh, no matter what I say, I'm going to make somebody unsatisfied or, or worried. Um, you know, you, you can't talk about the atonement without talking about uh, the Old Testament sacrificial system and how those worked and how, or, and how that system worked and sacrifices worked. And one of the things I presented last year, I'm not sure if you went to the presentation on, uh, I think you read this one about uh, how the sacrificial work system works in honor shame. But one of the things it did is it restored honor to God and to the offender. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some sense, it's a public acknowledging of, hey, I'm in the wrong. He is in the right. Uh, and so because holiness, as I've done, gone through the study, is permeated with this idea of unique honor. Um, when you talk about holiness of God and being made holy and being sanctified. Uh, and so the removing of objective shame. When I say objective shame, we're not just talking about psychologically, but uh, being worthy of shame and disregard by God. He, you mm-hmm. know, that, that's removed from us. Mm-hmm. And so and that's what the atonement accomplishes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd also like to touch on something you said about who God uses and such, because like I'd said in this Wago earlier on the show that uh, Allie and I are both on the autism spectrum, and sometimes my wife will have a way of looking at herself and saying, I'm not sure God can use me. I mean, look at all these things I have, look at all these conditions and such. And I say, honey, reality is, you're one of the favorites that God likes mm-hmm. to use. Because if you look at a passage like 1 Corinthians 1, which is one of my favorites, says, God uses that which the rest of the world calls shameful and rejects mm-hmm. to bring him the most glory. And it's, mm-hmm. I think it's also largely because when, when people are like, who are considered shameful or rejected do something great for the kingdom, mm-hmm. you can't really say they did it by their natural abilities or anything mm-hmm. like that. You have to say, there is something else going on there. Oh, absolutely. And this is, uh, brings up one of my very favorite things to talk about, one of the favorite takeaways of a lot of the honor-shame uh, discussion, is that we see a principle, a pattern in Scripture, that we are honored through shame. Mm-hmm. Just like as Christ was honored through the shame of the cross. Yeah. That's where he, afterwards he was vindicated and honored by God. Mm-hmm. And that's the pattern of ministry that Paul gives. I especially see that in Second Corinthians, I think, 4 uh, and 5. Yeah. Uh, and so that you uh, are willing to uh, suffer, to be humiliated by the world and so forth, because you know that you will be honored and vindicated by him. Second mm-hmm. uh, Corinthians, Hebrews, John, uh, is just full of this. You think about the blind man who, who is an outsider, an outcast, but actually we, in John 10 we find out that those who are cast out are actually insiders in, Jesus, in God's flock. You know, and when you were talking about the Navy SEALs thing, I was thinking about this, that's where this ties in. So one of that, when you said that's when it's just starting, and talk about the suffering and endurance that comes after that. And this is how radically different thing we are in the West, because we look at suffering, we think, wait, wait, this isn't supposed to happen. I mean, you know, our life is supposed to be nice and sweet and perfect, and in a rose garden and everything. And when we suffer, we look and say, something's not going right. When the Bible says the exact opposite, it says, do not act as if something strange is happening to you when you suffer. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely right. And so it should be an encouragement to us mm-hmm. that uh, we sometimes think, oh, that's a closed door because something's going to be hard there. And if it's going to be mm-hmm. hard and challenging, that actually might be uh, an open door. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because that's when God's going to uh, show himself sufficient. Mm-hmm. And we can't, this goes back to the value of reading the Old Testament. You see that that's actually very standard. Mm-hmm. In mission circles, uh, people often are praised if they have all this you know, numerical success and whatnot. But what you see in Scripture is Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah were all told from the very beginning, no one's going to listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would call them a success uh, in God's eyes. Uh, and, you know, they are honored now, uh, though they suffered shame in that time, and they were the outsiders and the ones who were belittled. And if we had this perspective, how much better would our ministry strategies be and our, the strength of our people and endurance of our people? And when you were talking about Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, I remember thinking uh, my wife loves playing the Samurai Warriors games on our game consoles. And mm-hmm. we we have a common joke together where you can see a cutscene before a battle and one of the characters says to the Troops off about us. Death is certain. Like, yeah, hmm. it's, a, it's a way mm-hmm. to be a motivational speaker right there. Terrible troops go into battle, but it's certain they're going to die. And mm-hmm. But then you just think, that sounds so funny, but then you look at uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel again and say, hey, I'm going to send you out on this mission. You're going to go reach people. You're going to be there for years and years. And oh, by the way, no one is going to listen to you. No one is going to believe you. You are going to be failing repeatedly at mm-hmm. what you want to do. And then we can turn over to the New Testament and see Paul, see God talking to Ananias about Paul saying, I will show this man how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that we set up people for failure when we don't, in the evangelistic process, talk about the costs uh, that may come. And one of the reasons for that uh, or why why this is such a big deal is that it helps people to count the costs and really have faith. Yeah. They might pray some prayer, but because they don't understand what they're getting into and the cost, they might not actually have faith to give allegiance. And then mm-hmm. when people preach the gospel, it'll make sense to them that they should face resistance and people will reject it because that happens any time that you preach the message of one kingdom to another kingdom and saying change your allegiance and loyalty. Yeah, I have a I've only married one couple in my lifetime, and unfortunately, within less than a year, they had pretty much split. And we are, we're still praying for them now. But I remember beforehand, I was alone with the groom, and we were in like the groom's room, whatever you might call it, before a ceremony. I said to him, Okay, I want you to know this. Here's what you're getting ready to do. You are going to make a covenant, and that is something that's done for life. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I wasn't trying to tell him, you know, don't do this or anything like that, but I was one that was serious and say, listen, if you cannot do this, back out right now. Are you mm-hmm. sure you want to do this? I mean, that's mm-hmm. the whole seriousness thing coming mm-hmm. in that we have to let these people know and say, this is how serious the covenant is. That, mm-hmm. I mean, when you make that marriage covenant, that is supposed to be until death do you part and that can be a very long time absolutely uh, and, and that's one reason why it's important to to make sure we get the whole gospel rather than just kind of a character of the gospel so that people understand 
that faith is this allegiance thing. It's a loyalty thing. Mm-hmm. And if you have a when it's convenient mentality, um, you know, that shows that there's a fundamental belief, mm-hmm. a, a misunderstanding that you have about the gospel and who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at, at this point in the show, about an hour and 20 minutes in, and if you're a regular listener, you know what's going on here. I want to remind you all that what we do here is listener-supported, and, you know, we really, really need that kind of support from you. So if you want to support us, Here's what you do. Go to deeperwaters.ddns.net. And there's a link there. It says, Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And there's a thing you can click. And when you click it, it it will take you to the ministry of Risen Jesus, Mike and Debbie Lacona. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, yes. Mike and Debbie haven't hacked my page or anything. But Mike and Debbie are my in-laws. And they are the ones that we get we get the donations through. Debbie is a great financial guru, and by taking the, the donations through Risen Jesus, everything is tax deductible. So you send an email, you send a donation in there to Mike and Debbie and say, hey, I want this to go to Nick Peters. I want it to go to Deep Water or something like that. You let them know, or you contact Allie or myself and say, hey, I just sent you a donation. Can you make sure your in-laws know about this? And we'll say, yeah, we'll make sure we know. And if you can be a monthly donor, and you're pretty much our bread and butter. And I, I look forward to a day when we can do something really special for our monthly donors. Right now, we don't have that yet. But we really do appreciate it. And we, we celebrate every time that we see someone who's willing to come alongside us and support for ministry. It, it means so much to know that you're out there listening which mean like, but like I told the story earlier, if a person said, you probably hear this all the time, I said, no, no, we don't hear it all the time. And it is needed. And so you do that. You know, or you can go to Amazon. I've got some ebooks there, some of COVID, Defining Inerrancy, Groundless, God and Natural Disasters. There's one I've written, and there are a few more I want to write, but I keep getting distracted in such regularly. But one I have written is A Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian. That one's available. And there's another way you can support us. And that's, uh, I, you know, guys, we were just talking about getting gifts for your ladies and such to build up a good reputation. Where jewelry is a great way to build up that reputation. Now, I, do I need to tell you guys out there, ladies love getting jewelry. And, in fact, if you are thinking of popping the question or something anytime soon, you're going to be needing to get a ring. I definitely need to get a ring. I remember that. My mother and I was applied the stone, but I had to get the ring. Well, you go to the link at our website. And my friend Lena Cluster handles all that. The access code is LOVE. You let me know if you're going to get something, if you need some help. Because whatever you purchase from her, 25% of it will go to Deeper Waters if you let us know that it is for us. And I mean, guys, that, that's a deal. So you can get a good piece of jewelry for the lady in your life. You can get her to show her how much you love her or to make up for that big screw-up you did or to make up for that big screw-up you're sure you're going to make in the future. Because trust me, you're going to make it. 
You know, I'm sure I can convince you of that. But if you go that way, you can make a, you can donate through buying jewelry, and you get to make your lady happy, and you get to support a ministry at the same time. And also, this one's now where donating to us, but it does show your support. Please go on iTunes. If you listen to the show regularly, go and please leave a positive review. I can't tell you how much it thrills my heart when I check the uh, iTunes reviews and I see something new and I see someone saying something good. And yeah, that fits right into the honor shame theme there entirely. See, it's still going on right there. <laughs> so, um, Dr. Wu, do you have any organization that you would like to uh, to see people donate to? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, one organization that I, I really support uh, is Training Leaders International. Um, and what the training leaders international dot org, uh, I believe I got the website right. They support, they do theological training around the world, and that's such a desperate need that people don't just don't realize. And they take it, they take it really seriously, and they're very sound. Um, so that's that's I try to support them however I can. Yeah, I just was typing it in, and yes, you are correct. It is training leaders international dot org. And so I encourage you to go there as well. And I, I take it I'm probably right for my whole thing with the reviews, but that is part of the honor shame, isn't it? Uh, what's what's that? What's part of that? That when honor I shame? talk about how getting the iTunes reviews in and oh, how that, yes. that that's honor shame right there. Absolutely, no question about it. You know, it's because it's about reputation. Yeah. And reputation is a, it's like social currency. I mean, but. Yeah, believe it or not, people, that Yelp app that you have on your phone is honor shame right there. Amazon <laughs> review page, honor shame, everything. <laughs> now, when we talk about Jesus also, and Jesus is also showing that God's faithful to the covenant. And what it is is a lot of people, I think, can look at the miracles and say, where Jesus is proving he's deity or saying that sort, and saying, no, no, Jesus is also authenticating himself, for one thing, and second, he's showing this is what's going to happen when God is king. I actually read Matthew 4 when it talks about Jesus going out and proclaiming the gospel after being tempted and such a thing. If we put that in modern terms, Jesus is kind of traveling around Israel, going on a campaign, and today, if it was if it was speaking out terms, he'd be saying pretty much, "Vote for me for your Messiah." <laughs> uh, yeah, if you were to democratize it, sure, mm -hmm. I would say that uh, regardless of how you vote, I am king, mm -hmm. and I prove it because I defeat demons, you know, uh, death and yeah. uh, uh, disease. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, when he's talking to people to be lawyer, he's saying, "Choose me." Let me be, and he he's he's very clear about this in the in the Bible, and yeah, it it somehow amazes me. He there's no middle ground with him. He says, "Look, you are either for me, or you are against me." And you know, a lot of skeptics on account get very scandalized when they hear about the passages about Jesus carrying a sword and dividing households and such. I say, "Look, that's just what happens when the kingdom comes." Because some people would be loyal to the king, and some won't. Mm. 
Absolutely. I think that's the fundamental goal of a gospel proclamation, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in terms of the listener, that is, mm-hmm. uh, is to have them give their allegiance, change their loyalty to Christ. And sometimes that will lead to conflict, and sometimes that will lead to rejoicing because they realize that having Christ as king is a lot better than you know the kings that they serve now. Mm-hmm. And the thing about Christ as king is that uh, he's the one who's able to undo everything. And when we talk about, for instance, the Old Testament stories about were they genocide or not, we say, well, you know what? God has the authority to take life for one reason. He's the one who gives it away. And it's all his. And he can give it back if he wants to with resurrection. Or he can take it away. He is the one who has that authority. We don't. And a lot of times when we look at objections to it, it's kind of saying, we're on the same path as God. We're on the same level. And if it's wrong for us to do this, it'd be wrong for God to do it as well. Well, no, not really. <laughs> yes, uh, there. I find this common dynamic that if we can't understand it, well, then we just we won't accept it from from God. But right. what parent would accept that from their kid if their kid said, "Well, I'm not going to obey you until I understand this completely"? Yeah. But it's funny how we do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it even happens in marriage. I mean, there are times that I have to say, right, "Honey, you're just going to have to trust me because it could be me, right? It could be." too difficult to explain something sometime or you know say it with if an anniversary or birthday is coming up and I seem to not be doing anything whatsoever Allie's come to the point where she's had to learn you know what I know my husband he's got something up his sleeve and if I doubt him on this I will never hear the end of it <laughs> so I'm just going to trust that he's doing something right here mm, absolutely mm-hmm. Now, how does this play out then? I mean, this, this is how different we've gone. It's an hour and a half in, and now we're starting to get to the application or principles. Mm. Seriously. I mean, this is another problem we have in our church, because usually we read the text, we jump straight to application instead of thinking about mm. what it means. I mean, one thing we've talked about is suffering. I mean, there is a sense that we're supposed to count it all joy when trials of many kinds and such come, but there's also a sense where there is a biblical basis for asking, and it even happens in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, with how long, O Lord, until justice comes. And there's, there's really nothing wrong still with asking the king the question about how long is there. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely not. Um, but you do, but you do need the perspective in order to yeah. uh, have that endurance. Perspective is so practical, but I find so often because of pragmatism, people just say, "Well, why does this matter? Why does this matter?" Well, perspective affects everything in ways you don't even see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and when we do this, in fact, we we could say we're complaining to God, but we also do this. We're showing honor to him because we say, you know, we know you are the one who is supposed to remain faithful to this covenant. And right now, frankly, it doesn't look like you're doing a good job. But we know mm-hmm. there's got to be something there. There's still some trust in God when we complain to him, isn't there? Absolutely. Because you're, you're taking your complaint to the one that you know can set it right. Right. Uh, I, I'm thinking... Last night when I was going to go to bed, I was thinking, I'm going to be finished with this book that I'm reading on my Kindle soon. 
I need to get the next one downloaded so it'll be ready. And I push the button and it says something about DRM. This button, this book cannot be read on this device. Try and repurchase it. I, think, I spent some of my Amazon credit to repurchase this book. I'm not going to purchase again what I should rightfully have now. I could get gotten up this morning and complained to Allie about it and said, I can't believe what I went through. I, haven't, I didn't get to read this book I was wanting to, yada, yada, yada. And the I mean, most she could have said, well, hon, I'm very sorry about it. There's just nothing I can do. But what instead I did wind up doing was, okay, Amazon, customer service, chat program, yeah, here's what's going on. Okay, we can take care of that. Boom, it's done. I, mean, I could have complained to anyone all day long, but there was only one person or one organization consisting of many persons that could do something about the problem. Mm-hmm. That's right. Good analogy. Yeah. Now, how does this also work with forgiveness? I mean, that's sort of something that I've been told is that one of the great scandals in many cases in the Bible is that God forgives so much because that's kind of something that's unheard of in that culture right you just say I forgive you and it's the canceling of all debt I mean, how incredible is forgiveness in that culture uh, well and because so much of eastern culture is like is like biblical culture I can speak on both sides that today uh, you know in a lot of eastern cultures what you'll find is that people just don't talk about the problem There's, you know maybe just uh, if they ignore it it'll go away um and you a lot of indirect speech. You see a lot of this in scripture and, and directness. Yeah. And I think one of the things, one of the most fundamental things that uh, has to be done is that people have to be willing to take the initiative to lose face in order to themselves so as to reconcile relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you are trying to save face while reconciling, it just won't work. You got to pick one or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's different ways to, to do it appropriately. And I can't speak to every cult how to do it. But I think that's one of the, the things you get out of. Uh, Christ's example and this overturning of the honor-shame standards. Yeah, one of the ways I think that we see how seriously Jesus takes this is he says in the sermon says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, go and make reconciliation. And it's because he doesn't say if you remember you have something against your brother, go and make reconciliation. I mean, you could say, you know, you might think you're entirely in the right, but your brother was upset with you. You better go make things right with him. Absolutely. And we, what well, I think gets in the way is that besides, besides pride and fear of rejection and whatnot, uh, is that we think that if we admit any wrong or any error, then somehow uh, God's going to lose face and everything we stand for is undermined. And so it's like yeah. we think we're everyone's all right or all wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, the truth is that God's only going to get honor uh, mm-hmm. If we're willing to be, uh, you know, looked down upon socially, you know, shamed as it were, uh, at least for a time, um, and live up to our honor shame standards rather than going, well, what would they think? Just do the right thing uh, mm-hmm. and let the cards fall where they may and we'll be honored before God. You know, when you're talking about uh, having to, you know, not admit error or anything like that, uh, I, I was just saying about something that, you know, this isn't a Project X podcast, and I think this is a great error about many of us in the apologetics community fall prey to because we think I have to be able to answer every single question that comes out there and if I cannot answer every single question then that is just going to cause such 
embarrassment for the gospel and such. And I tell people, look, give that one up, okay? Mm. I don't care who you're looking at in the apologetics community. I don't care if you're looking at William Lane Craig or N.T. Wright or anyone else out there. They can, no one you meet can answer every single question out there. Mm-hmm. And there is no shame in saying, I'm sorry, I really can't speak to that question. Mm-hmm. If you say, I mean, I always say, have someone in mind. Someone comes to me with a question about Islam, for instance, I'm sorry, I really can't speak to that one. Have you spoke to Nabil Qureshi or David Wood or Sam Shamoon? They mm. can answer this question, and that's mm. their area. And um, yes. if I don't know thing, the area, I don't speak. Yeah, one thing I would speak to that uh, that's relevant to contextualization and honor shame uh, comes out of Romans 14. I, yeah. I just finished writing the book on Romans. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that people don't recognize there uh, is that he, Paul identifies that the one group is the weak group. So mm-hmm. he takes a side in terms of who he thinks is right or wrong. But what we find is that, uh, I think it's in verse 6, uh, Romans 14, verse 6, I think, that even the one who is theologically wrong, mistaken on on this debatable issue, still can honor God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we sometimes think that we had the fight to the death and, and we had to be so rigid, uh, and we make everything a war rather than a battle. Mm-hmm. And that undermines collective identity. Because then you create such strong subcultures that you make it impossible to have this broader understanding and unity among the church. Yeah. Uh, and then you undermine the ability to reconcile because now uh, you, we've baptized our opinion where there may be room to wiggle on these issues. Yeah. And I'm not saying be relativistic, but we need to allow for more mm-hmm. you know, genuine debate on, mm-hmm. on issues. And with realizing that there are other people out there, I've told people every now and then, you need to take a break. And one of the things that I do is I serve in answering questions for ministries. I do debates on Facebook and things like that. I say, you know what, when Sunday comes around, I take a break. I don't do debates or things of that sort. I mean, I might watch what's going on, but I'm not doing it. I'm taking that break. And I, I tell guys when they're about going up there, they're getting married. I say, here's my advice. When you get married, I want you to take a break from ministry for a week. And I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, like, you're supposed to be out there living the gospel. I'm saying don't be like, preaching sermons or doing, doing debates, things like that. Avoid your email. Avoid Facebook. Give a week's worth of rest. Donate time to your new prize because that is the mm-hmm. foundation of time you're going to be building a relationship. And you know what? The rest of the world will make it out there. You are not as essential as you will think you are. And as a married person now, your first priority is not to your ministry or your career anyway. It's to your spouse. So build up that time. There are other people who can do the work for you. Yeah. And there's a practice that I suggest people that develops proper humility when it comes to contextualization mm-hmm. and honor shame and that is intentionally seek out uh try to find and identify what is right in the people that you tend to agree with or disagree with right. uh purpose i purposefully interact with them and, tr- and purposely try to be sympathetic you know not fearing well if i just agree with them on this one area then i have this deep slippery slope well no they might have genuinely good insight that maybe they just took a wrong turn Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe you're saying similar things, but from different perspectives. 
and that creates the humility. Uh, I think not to be has this visceral, you know, strong, you know, debates, and mm-hmm. uh, it helps you to be more humble about your own view. Mm-hmm. Now, let's look at another way we could try and find application here, and this is one I would say, admittedly, I struggle with, and I think a lot of people who can be very much like myself, where we're not very social and we're much more intellectual, and that's prayer, actually. Because prayer, and I think it's especially for guys, it doesn't make sense to us because if something happens, I as a man, I want to go out there and do something. (laughs) And Uh I mean, if my wife comes to me and she's in pain, I want to be doing something to help her immediately. When a man think, you know, wake up, you can start praying about this. Oh, yeah, I, 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 I lost sight of sight of that one. How does prayer fit into this? Well, on one on, on one sense, uh, what it does is it requires us to endure more hardship in the meantime uh, and look like we don't know what we're doing because chances are we're probably not. So there's a sense in which you have to be one loose face to, when you're being patient in prayer. Mm-hmm. The other thing is it it is honoring God as the one who uh, grants the wisdom in, in His timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then contextually uh, with respect to sexualization, we have to remember that uh, sometimes we short circuit prayer because we think of uh, one size fits all answers. And this is how it worked there, and this so this is how we should do it here, and this is how it worked once, and so I should do it that way again, almost kind of mechanistic. Yeah, and like prayer, a formula. That's right, and prayer gives. Uh, uh, the context and opportunity to realize that uh, we might have to do things differently in different contexts that seem contradictory even, but mm-hmm. because of the context, uh, they make sense. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are sometimes that I do find myself giving those minute prayers because those are the ones most appropriate. Like, if I'm driving, for instance, and I hear a siren of a police or a fire or ambulance, I'm going to say a minute prayer right there mm-hmm. and my prayer things were right and yeah that's definitely one prayer I'm not closing my eyes for there will be another reason to pray <laughs> there are I'm thinking about how, I, how I've heard that uh, Dan Allender he prays every time he goes by I think it's a truck stop he says those are actually places where human trafficking takes place a lot of times and where the sex trade gets mm-hmm. a lot of victims and I say a prayer and I, I think it could be that those minute prayers could be some ones that are really the most changing for us because they teach us to depend on God for everything. I mean, we're supposed to pray without ceasing, but obviously you can't stay on your knees 24-7 with your eyes closed. Mm-hmm. You have to be up there doing mm-hmm. something. I mean, mm-hmm. but the prayer without ceasing, that to me, live your life focused on God and depending on Him for everything, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's really uh, being a Christian and, and accepting the gospel and following the gospel is really about worldview change, not just mm-hmm. this literal, uh, you know, like you were talking about, you know, being on your niche twenty four hours a day. It's about yeah. seeing the whole whole world and responding to the world in a whole different way. You know, when we talk about worldview change, when it comes to defense or resurrection, one of the main points point two is that uh, Paul became a Christian. You know, a lot of people will look at this and say. Yeah, yeah. Paul changed his religion. Big deal. It happens all the time. It happens everywhere in the world today. But in an Eastern culture, in a biblical culture, it's a, it is indeed a big deal, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Because they, uh, 
there's no separation, you know, throughout most of human history and the world's cultures of favorite religion and quote unquote normal life. Mm. I mean, it's what is most bind to who are you and who are the people that are most important to you. Uh, so uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 it's fundamental to everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ravi Zacharias once told a story. I mean, we in the West, we do not understand this kind of story. We talk about a story about someone who came to him who had gotten a PhD and they had changed their religion on the way to become a Christian. He said, I'm wondering if I should take my PhD and bury it at the graves of my parents. And we look at him and think, why would you do that? And I would mm. everybody think, why shouldn't I do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just imagine uh, how does their truth be transformed if we... Uh, took seriously uh, the honoring of parents, particularly in a Western context. Mm-hmm. You know, even you know, Paul in Romans 13 told them to honor government officials who certainly were not worthy of it, so to speak, but because of their position, their mm-hmm. ascribed uh, w- honor, that they should be honored. That would have a ripple effect that permeate every aspect of life. Mm-hmm. And the, the parental authority, uh, I'm remembering Randy Richards' book, the mystery in scripture of Western eyes where he says, you know, we sometimes have this thing where we read in where we say, honor the authority until you ret- until you can't turn 18 and then you're free and you're on your own. Because mm. he, he starts his book talking about going over to, I think it was Indonesia, mm-hmm. and being a teacher there and having them kind of say, we're, we're concerned about what to do about the, this couple, they, they committed a grave sin, and we're not sure if we should let them back in or not. And he started on and said, where was the grave sin? And he turned up, they said, they, this couple had a married on the run. Said, okay, mm-hmm. what's this? And he found out it went eloping. And mm-hmm. he said, they eloped. Okay, what's the great sin? And this this culture segment said, "Haven't you read Paul? <laughs> My PhD is is in the area of Paul. I've read Paul. What have I met? <laughs> Paul said, honor your father and mother.' Mm-hmm. And he thought, I've been reading that the whole time. And thought that that stopped whenever you became an adult and you were out on your own. But for these people, eloping was dishonoring your father and mother." Yeah, and I think that's a helpful thing about having an uh, truly understanding how honor and shame works uh, holistically mm-hmm. is that all of a sudden you notice these applications or these re- texts that are more relevant than you ever realized. Yeah, they, they just jump out, uh, jump out to you. So it's not a matter of eisegesis where you're forcing something into the, the text. It's just that the things that are, have always been there, you now take notice of. Yeah, there's something else I think we read in the text here in the West, and that's the idea of guilt. Um, in a sense, there is, of course, guilt in the case, in the case of objective guilt, that you have done something wrong. But mm-hmm. we read it in the West about how you have a guilty conscience, that inside you know right and wrong, and things of that sort. And in the biblical culture, and I'm guessing they in the Far East, you don't know right from wrong based on internal feelings or internal guilt that you experience but you know it from your culture around you. Isn't that right? Yeah, well, and practically speaking, that's how it is in every culture where people, they, mm-hmm. where they get their uh, their initial compass and understanding of things, whether it be right or wrong, 
is from their community. Right. So at a practical level, it's just true anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the truth is that even right and wrong is relative to God. Right. Uh, it's, so when we talk about absolute, it's not absolute versus relativism. It's who are you relative to? Is it relative to God or relative to some other social leader or social group? Yeah, and I, I think that might help people uh, when they're thinking through honor, shame, and whatnot. That we're not talking about relativism in that sense, yeah. uh, but it, your community is a major part of forming how your understanding of right and wrong and true and wrong is. Yeah, and we could think, for instance, of a young man who grows up in the church and he goes off to college and he goes to a secular college, and he's living in a fraternity, and with the guys around him, he's expected. You're supposed to go out and sleep with as many girls as possible. And if you're not doing that, we have to question if you're a real man. And he, mm-hmm. he's getting his dictates of right and wrong mm-hmm. from them. And if he goes with that, he'll gain honor with them, but he'll lose face with God. And mm-hmm. if he goes with God, he gains face with God, but he loses honor with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's, a, that's a something people have to realize is that we will not have face or honor in front of everyone. Right. To have honor in one group necessarily means we will lose face in another. Mm-hmm. But what we try to do is we constantly try to hedge our bets. And so then we are you know, uh, basically compromised everywhere. Mm-hmm. And what we do wrongly in our evangelism, if we go up to the Eastern person and talk about guilt and how they feel about themselves more and more instead of talking about honor about how their reputation will be overall mm-hmm. uh, you're saying you're saying you're suge- you're asking if i suggest that we talk about the shame the honor part as opposed to the guilty feelings part yes yes uh and that this is where an important distinction comes in mm-hmm. is that guilt uh is primarily about what you do mm-hmm. whereas shame is about who we are yeah so now, honor and shame is based on two things, who you know, your relationships, and what you do. So actually, guilt is a subsection uh, or subcategory of shame in the broader picture. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it's, you know, so it's actually more fundamental for us to talk about these honor and shame issues and who they are and their public worth and who is their, you know, who determines their value. Uh, because the whole uh, the guilt feelings aspect is such a narrow part. It's an important part, but it's a narrow aspect. Mm-hmm. I, way I put it this way, you know, people sometimes make Martin Luther's kind of as the, the model for how salvation works. And we have this stricken conscience and then wonder how a holy God will accept us. Well, I doubt that the president of China and, you know, a lot of other countries around here have ever woken up and going, how will a holy God accept me? No. Mm-hmm. What they're more concerned about is who are their relationships? What kind of reputation do they have? Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of thing. That's more practically significant to them than some idea of trying to earn salvation because they have a guilty conscience. Yeah, I've uh, written an article for a magazine, you know, once a, a project magazine talking about how we do our evangelism. I said, you know, I did a search for New Testament and I looked for when the terms guilt and innocence showed up. When they show up, it's not as often as we'd like. In fact, it never shows up in Romans, which is supposed to be the great story, the great book about how to become a Christian and such. Mm-hmm. Guilt and innocence never show up. But when they show up, it's never about how a person feels. It's about an objective reality. But mm-hmm. honor and shame show up so much more frequently in the New Testament, including in Romans. 
And, mm-hmm. and you know what? When was the last time you heard something in the sermon about getting rid of guilt? Yeah, you probably heard that. When was the last mm-hmm. time you heard something in the sermon about honor and shame? Probably you never mm-hmm. heard that one. Yeah, and the funny thing is, is that uh, like I think about Romans ten eleven, I think it is, and also in Romans nine thirty three, back to back. Paul quotes the same passage about those who believe will not be put to shame, mm-hmm. and it's juxtaposed to justification by faith. Right. So justification actually is explained, elaborated in honor shame terms. Mm-hmm. What do you think we can be doing to return church to the honor shame motif? Well, first I would say uh, that we, no one should hear me at least saying that we should choose an either-or because yeah. we're living a more well-rounded human perspective and regaining honor shame is, is a part of that. Uh, one of the things I put in the latter part of the book is one of the practical ways you can help contextualize and get this perspective is learning about other cultures, mm-hmm. um, diversifying the types of people you're, you're around and with. Uh, people that you are very different and being humble and curious to learn about their view, even if you think what their view is just flat wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, that will help us to, to be more sensitive to issues of identity, mm-hmm. uh, uh, how honor shame works at a practical level, uh, hierarchy, you know, because we are, uh, uh, you know, a hierarchy culture here in the East, but, you know, uh, we call it egalitarian in the West. Well, mm-hmm. that is going to require some time for you really to see how much that affects some people's worldview. I would mm-hmm. say that's one of the first things that you do. But second of all, I would say read Scripture intentionally looking mm-hmm. for honor, shame language. Yeah. And I think on Warren Mitchkey's blog and others, uh, mm-hmm. there are, uh, and honorshame.com, you'll see that honor, shame is in, has all these different concepts besides the words honor and shame. Yeah. So if you kind of understand, you know, what those are, then you can see them in Scripture, and now you realize, okay, uh, I don't just want an honor-shame perspective in general. I want to have a biblical honor-shame perspective. Right. And then all of a sudden, I've I seen again and again, people say, now I see it everywhere, both in culture and in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and since you mentioned Warner Mischke, I will let people know that we interviewed him, I believe it was last year, I think in February. I'll check that. We interviewed him on his book, the Global Gospel, and your book, One Gospel for All Nations, is a wonderful resource on this, and the good news of you today is if you want to read something on this, even from an evangelical Christian perspective, there is really no limit to the literature out there, is there? Uh, yeah, the, 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 the literature is, is increasing, and, and uh, you know, I'm doing what I can to try to help in that conversation. Yeah. And let's give a, a little bit of a peak of what could be coming. You do have another book in the works right now, don't you? Correct, with IVP. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's about uh, honor, it's looking at honor and shame, uh, looking at the book of Romans from an honor shame perspective. Um, and I, it's in the editing process now. And part of my goal was to say this, that if we can see honor shame pervasively throughout Romans, mm-hmm. then uh, we can't constantly pit law legal versus honor shame we realize that in the quote-unquote most legal book in the bible honor shame is pervasive Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that was part of the goal i had there is and it's actually i try to wedge two worlds together i try to hit the scholars on the one hand but also the practitioners on the other Mm -hmm. and uh, so when i first started talking about this idea i had people in the book industry say that's impossible you know you can't write for both missionaries and theologians at the same time 
Well, we'll see. Uh, we're, we're trying to do that with this book. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to when that comes out. Make sure to attend your your, conf, your talks at ETS when I could. I did find out about them from Warner Mischke's work, and I'm very pleased that I did. Mm, thank you, thank you. Well, unfortunately, we are getting the time where we need to start wrapping things up. I want to let people know the book, One Gospel for All Nations by Jackson Wu. That's spelled W-U, by the way. I'm looking right now on Amazon. The paperback is fifteen ninety nine. The Kindle is nine ninety nine. So I really encourage you, please go and get the book. It'll be very, very helpful to you. And I, I found when I was going through, there were so many things I was circling, highlighting, everything. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really good stuff. Uh, Dr. Wu, do you have a, a blog, a website, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yes, uh, I have a website, uh, Jackson Wu. Dot org, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, I have a presence that can be found on uh, Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there's a Chinese site uh, for those who speak Chinese, wu-rong.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are, the, those are the main ways to get a hold of me. And I, I've also seen that you're on Pathios as well. Yes, I'm, uh, my blog is part of the Pathios network. Yeah, yeah. I, I found out about that actually when I was looking at links coming to my blog and I found you wrote a very nice piece about my view of yours and I really appreciate that. <laughs> well, thank you. I was very I was very honored by your kind words. There it is again. <laughs> uh, you can't escape it. Now, do you, do you have any final words that you would like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience? Uh, yes. Uh, people often ask me, well, where do we go from here? And... What I would say is, you know, there's two things. One is try to start learning about, uh, in your own context, how honor shame affects you personally and the people around you. Mm-hmm. I think the Christianity Today article last year, I think it's called The Return of Shame by Annie Crouch, is a good place to start. Mm-hmm. And then just if you are doing ministry, try to just start using more honor shame type language. First off, figure out what that language is. Mm-hmm. It might not use the words honor and shame. It might be face or it might be glory. talking about Facebook or glory who knows yeah. different way reputation praise like think about the phrase people pleasing yeah. you know uh, find out what that is and just start including that in your daily conversation more mm-hmm. and you, I think you'll see people pay more attention uh, to what you have to say mm-hmm. well Dr. Weir I'd like to thank you for coming and taking your time to be on here and I uh, hope we'll see you back here again sometime yes thank you for inviting me I enjoyed it mm-hmm. And I'd like to remind everyone that next time we'll be recording it Monday, Dr. Richard Balcom is going to be my guest. And we're going to be responding to Bart Ehrman's book, Jesus Before the Gospels. And I hope you'll be here for that. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs>